a lot of the frustration at the ANC is sometimes not because of its inability to develop an economic redistributive program, but because of its inability to create that black bourgeoisie that is supposed to deracialize South African capital and and replace um, you know white and foreign capital with an indigenous capitalist class. Um, that's basically what the politics of the so-called radical economic transformation block in South African politics is. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Internationalism from Below series um, of uh, what's happening. And today is what's happening in South Africa. And we're so pleased to have two speakers here from Africa is a Country, the online magazine. Sean Jacobs and Will Shoki. I'll introduce them a little bit in a little bit more detail in just a sec, but just want to say, first of all, my name is Lee Wengraf. I'm a member of Internationalism from Below. We're the hosts of this, along with Africa as a Country, Review of African Political Economy, and Haymarket Books. So welcome, welcome. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a quick background to this. So there's been um, some pretty momentous developments in South Africa of late. Um, starting in the summer, there was um, important uprisings in July in response to the arrest of uh, or the um, uh, turning himself in of Jacob Zuma, the former president, on charges related to corruption, and which really opened up uh, a really um, a fairly widespread protests and political violence. And then just this over the past few months, um, there have been a, a lot of political developments in the lead up to the elections, which just took place on November 1st, the municipal elections. A lot to talk about there. Um, the ANC, the African National Congress, some historic results um, with that. And so we wanted to bring people together, bring Will and Sean together to have a conversation about what, all, what does all this mean sort of more big picture, both for social movements uh, and the left in South Africa about conditions on the ground, some of the kind of, um, you know, uh, state level politics and all of that. So it should be really exciting. Um, so um, just to, to introduce the speakers now, first of all, we have uh, Sean Jacobs, who is the uh, the founder of uh, the founder and editor of Africa as a country, and he's associate professor at the New School at the Inter uh, of International Affairs, and is the author of Media in Post-Apartheid South Africa: Postcolonial Politics in the Age of Globalization. Originally from Cape Town, so welcome, Sean. And we also have with us uh, Will Shoki, William Shoki, who is a staff writer uh, for Africa as a Country, um, has been contributing some really amazing and important pieces over the past few months, including an op-ed in the New York Times about the uh, political developments over the summer. 
uh, and Will is based in Johannesburg. So welcome also to you, uh, Will. And uh, so we're going to kind of get right into it, just a little bit of kind of um, give folks a sense of how uh, we're going to, the next hour and a half is going to go. Um, the three of us are going to uh, have a conversation. I have some questions for Will and for Sean. Um, and then we will open it up to you, the audience, to share your questions for the panelists. And um, and I'll remind people of this, but the way that you would want to do that is that you'll need to log into the event on YouTube and then share those, um, get those questions in the chat. That's how we're going to hear from you best. So without further ado, um, welcome again, and we're going to uh, jump right jump right into it. So um, hi, Sean. Hi, Will. Glad to see you. Um, and uh, so the first kind of topic that I thought, which is sort of top of mind, is, um, is the recent elections. And maybe we'll sort of start there. It's the most recent and current and, and move back. But Seems like there's, you know, a number of important developments. Um, the ANC's poor showing, um, the historic low turnout across across the board. Um, it seems like there's a number of things in place, possible coalition building, but that's kind of in in progress. But then also some of the kind of left electoral projects and things like that. I don't know, you know, and and where some of the different left groups kind of were involved and positioned around this. So I'd love to hear anything and everything and sure will be just to, you know, take it away on, on that question. Thanks Lee. And, and thanks to, to Hey Market Books for, for organizing this. Um, I think this election did feel like a turning point. And I think what really gave everyone the sense that it was going to lead to an unprecedented reorganizing South Africa's political landscape, primarily to, to the damage of the ANC, was just the extent to which social crises were accumulating. I think that was obvious to a lot of South Africans that the unrest in July was uh, a wake-up call to everyone about how bad things had begun. Of course, there's a long-standing energy crisis that is ongoing in South Africa with our, our main energy provider, ESCOM, being unable to provide stable power supply to the majority of South Africans. Uh, as we speak, I'm, I'm actually in the dark, in the middle of a blackout, and I could disappear at any moment. So apologies to everyone if I suddenly disappear and reappear on my phone. But I think, you know, South Africans, there's a, there's a word uh, in South Africa, in, in Afrikaans, that, that are called khatfo, uh, which means just completely fed up. And I think a lot of South Africans are hurtful um, and that the, the discontent is directed primarily at the African National Congress and at the Democratic Alliance, which is the official opposition in South Africa. I think for a really long time, the Democratic Alliance presented itself as this party that was capable of governing and overcoming the shortfalls of the ANC, such as poor administration and corruption and so on and so forth. But I think what a lot of South Africans have come to realize over the years is that the DA's governance is no better than the ANC's. It's performed poorly in lots of local municipalities, scored badly in, in metrics and, and scorecards, uh, and has sort of consolidated itself as 
as this party that is catered to a very specific white minority sort of besieged kind of kind of constituency uh, with no majoritarian aspirations. So, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that South Africa is experiencing the kind of pasokification phenomenon that you know is is was was evident in 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 large, large parts of the of the global north since since two thousand eight. But basically, we've seen the centre left. Uh, as embodied by the ANC and the center right is embodied by the DA collapsing. And what that has done is it's open room for a lot of challenges. Of course, the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is the third largest political party in South Africa, has been in the game since 2013 uh, and took advantage of the ANC's internal fracturings, uh, which began with Jacob Zuma's presidency and has only worsened. And we'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, about those factional politics in a moment. Uh, they've been in the game. There have been new entrants uh, into the scene as well. There have been some left challenges uh, as well. But I think what was really noticeable about these elections was how, barring one or two examples, a lot of new political players were primarily concentrated to specific municipalities. So seeing the emergence of this kind of civic movement-like political formation of people within their specific areas deciding to mobilize and address crises at a local level is, is what we've noticed here. So it's 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 it remains to be seen whether or not this phenomenon is going to contribute to, to political formations that want to contest power uh, at a national level, as well as understanding exactly what the political character of a lot of these formations are. So um, the powers just come back, which is which is awesome. Um, and they heard you. And, they heard you. <laughs> they heard me. <laughs> they heard me indeed. So so maybe they're much more responsive after these elections. Um, but that's just very broadly a kind of a kind of description of of what happened um, and how South Africans are are reeling with it. I could I could add a couple of things actually, um, and from actually as you can hear that's the New New York New York City like light with the sirens. Um, I mean I think one of the big things for people watching from the outside was they wondered how long it would take people to to sort of lose their patience with the ANC, or or to put it a different way, how long people would would trust the ANC or kind of for, to lead the project of transforming South Africa. And in most cases, if there are these kind of, you know, liberation movements, center-left, left parties, they get they get some time. Like after such, you know, with South Africa, you're at apartheid, so there's like this massive, massive social kind of transformation if you want, and we can debate like the, the extent of that transformation, the limits of it, but it was, it was a massive transformation. Black people, you know, voted for the first time in 94. So the question was always how long would the ANC hold like that the the aspirations of the majority of the people of the country? And it's clear that it it's literally like in two decades, um, you know, it, it's moving away from the ANC. Now you have to ask like why? And we could go into that, but it I think just as a sort of preliminary remark, I mean, at some level you could argue that the that the conditions, if you look from the outside, like the ANC could try to change the country, but it was also trapped. It's like a marginal country. Sorry, Will. Sorry, Sean. 
Like it's not it's not a country at the center of the world. So it was of course it was going to be subject to the diktats from Washington, you know, from the IMF, from the World Bank, uh, the kind of consent, the neoliberal consensus. So be it. But I also think it had a on the other side, it had a lot of goodwill and it also had a lot of legitimacy. And that's the part that I think in South Africa, when Will says about this hatful thing, I think people were like, you had all this goodwill, you had a project and you squandered it. So because anybody looking at South Africa for like the last decade, at least, will notice that it's basically all about corruption, power play, you know, being obsessed with, with, with power. And I think that did alienate a large part of the electorate. People are not, when the key thing is people are not voting, people are not turning up, people are not um, turning up to vote. I think the second thing that is striking about this, this, these are local elections, like in any country, when you, when you, when, when a local election happens, people don't see local elections necessarily as indicative of like the national mood. You know, local elections are about local issues. You're electing councillors, you're electing mayors. Uh, and in South Africa, also the power between the South Africa, the unitary state, the, the central state has way more authority than the provincial governments or the local governments. So you don't expect the local government elections to be a referendum on kind of the state of the nation. But it seems it was, I mean, because of, you know, these things that were mentioned, the blackouts, the levels of corruption, the people feeling kind of um, unsafe that any you know any anything can there's this kind of random violence in the in the society. So I think for that the, the the elections were definitely a referendum. And to that end, clearly the this is this this was a this was a a, a kind of negative assessment of the ANC's governance. And he's also correct. I just wanted to add something to what he said about the DA. People forget that the Democratic Alliance, while they are a much smaller party, I think they get like 20 odd percent of the vote. They do govern one of the provinces, the Western Cape. They run the provincial government. They run the, the major city there, the city of Cape Town, and they run a number of small towns. And they presented themselves as this alternative to the ANC as like, we do good, clean government. But anybody who watches politics in Africa would have noticed like they also had their corruption scandals. They also, interestingly, they ran Johannesburg. So they ran Johannesburg, and, and, and Will probably knows more about their record in Joburg. And the guy that ran Johannesburg for them, he's a gazette, openly xenophobic, um, you know. So the, the way he, the, he was all about crime and blaming foreigners. So I don't know, there is a, there, which is going to get to my last point, and I'll shut up for this part. He, he clearly, that was his politics. And I think the last thing I want to do, because I was waiting for Will to say something about that, there's definitely been the smaller parties that emerge. Will is more hopeful about the civic movements, but I think what we not what we have to accept is that there's been the emergence of kind of these kind of smaller right-wing parties. And by right-wing, that's a big catch-all. This could be from sort of, you know, the sort of people who left the DA to move to a sort of white right, which is a kind of, in, the old, in South Africa, they call that fight back politics, which is like, you know, fighting back against change. And they went to another smaller party called the Freedom Front, which used to insist on like a separate homeland for whites. So they went to that party. And then there are ethnic, these kind of small ethnic parties. So a lot of the DA's appeal initially was to present it to colored people. You know, the sort of throwaway term is a mixed race. Um, to present them as kind of in a, as a buffer group, and the DA tried to appeal to them. They are also now leaving the DA 
for sort of et- smaller ethnic parties, like if you Google something like the Patriotic Alliance, um, uh, or, or there's, you know, all these kind of small parties run by various figures that in another place people might call gangs, ex-gangsters, etc. So there's, there's a lot of small right-wing parties obsessed with crime, all about being against foreigners that have emerged. And that's more depressing. And those parties, finally, are also black. Because before we could just say the right was white. In South Africa, there's also a right wing emerging among black, black South Africans. It's always been there. But I think now it's quite more prominent. It's out in the open. Well, I just wanted to add like a quick follow up just in thinking about what you just said, Sean, about the kind of at the time of, you know, 1994 and where South Africa was on the global stage and kind of the the pressures of being, you know, a, a relatively smaller nation and, you know, and, and the kind of the constraints the ANC was under. I'm just wondering what the two of you think about that in terms of the trajectory of the ANC becoming neoliberalized, or if you would agree with this characterization, because I mean, of course that there's, I, I agree, Sean, with the sort of constraints that you're talking about, but then in terms of the the political character and the sort of the failure, you could say, of a redistributive project um, and, and class polarization, is this solely due to kind of these more macro factors? Is there also, what do we say about kind of the growing like black bourgeoisie or class polarization within South Africa? So I'm just kind of toss that back. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah, that's a crucial. Um, and I think appreciating the macroeconomic constraints that the ANC faced is important. But thinking about what Sean just said now about the, how there's always been this right wing current that's present in South Africa, I think, you know, in a large way, that's been the default of South African politics. It's only really becoming legible now. So when you think about the African National Congress, uh, its class character from the beginning has always been this elite black political project uh, from its founding in the early 20th century. And it's always been an African nationalist political party. I mean, in the 1940s, you had key ANC figures like A.B. Kuma, even Nelson Mandela, talking about how the aspiration of the ANC wasn't necessarily the the recharting of the political order in South Africa, but finding space for the emergence of a black middle class and for black people to participate in the capitalist economy. And it was only really when they entered into coalition with the Communist Party that they were sort of forced to position themselves as a radical political party. But it's always been this broad church that's included different political tendencies and the dominant political tendency has been this uh, African nationalist orientation. So that when the 1990s came, uh, there were a lot of figures within the ANC who were not interested in a redistributive economic program, who saw the integration of South Africa into the world capitalist economy as providing an opportunity for, for aspirant black capitalists to to find their own venues of accumulation. Um, That became sort of formalized under the Black Economic Empowerment Project and so on and so forth. And the ANC throughout its history has never really been interested in articulating what its economic program 
was. So probably the most sophisticated document of that was the Freedom Charter. And the Freedom Charter was this document drafted collectively with many different stakeholders. Um, and so never really was an ANC document uh, such that by the time the late 1980s came, the early 1990s came, the ANC was under a lot of pressure. And because of its inability to clarify what its economic outlook was, also its lack of interest in doing so, because they did have a vested interest in in, in being integrated in the into the capitalist economy, uh, it capitulated easily. Uh, and I think that a lot of the time when we think back about that that moment, um, people will portray it or think of it in the popular imagination as being. Um, as a as a sellout moment and the sellout moment because of those macroeconomic pressures, uh, but I think that can sometimes underplay the extent to which uh, the ANC always had this interest of of integrating um, Black South Africans into capitalism rather than than fighting for something different. And even though it entered into alliance with organizations such as the South African Communist Party and always stuck to its sort of theory of social change, which was the so-called National Democratic Revolution, uh, mm -hmm. when, you know, in classic Marxist-Leninist fashion, it said we would have a first stage of national liberation, um, and that will be led by uh, the ANC as the vanguard of, of Black South Africans. And then we will have the second stage of, of, of socialist transformation uh, led by or realized through class struggle. But that was always postponed. That was always deferred. Um, and I think that what a lot of people um, are starting to realize now is that's the case. But they're also, I think, apropos of what Sean is saying just now, a lot of the frustration at the ANC is sometimes not because of its inability to develop an economic redistributive program, but because of its inability to create that black bourgeoisie that is supposed to deracialize South African capital and and replace um, you know white and foreign capital with an indigenous capitalist class. Um, that's basically what the politics of the so-called radical economic transformation block in South African politics is, um, and that includes everyone from factions of the African National Congress to the economic freedom fighters, um, to people in, in a lot of different uh, organizations. And I think thinking about what would be the most frightening thing about this emergence of, of a new right in South Africa, I think Action SA, which is the political party that is uh, led by Herman Mashaba, Sean was, was talking about now, he was uh, the former mayor of Johannesburg. I think something that that Action SA lacks is its sort of refusal to be a traditional party. So basically the way it designs itself is as a sort of civic populist front. So very similar to the Five Star Movement in Italy, it says, you know, we will have a devolution of power. We will allow people to directly elect who they want their councillors to be um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that might be one of its limitations to really developing a, a mass character because it doesn't really provide you as much opportunity for for careerism and rising through the ranks and and finding a way to 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 use access to political resources for enrichment uh, I think what would be frightening is is thinking ahead of the of the general election in, in 2024 is if all of these sort of at the moment loosely organized, coalitions of RET, sympathetic politicians, uh, and so on and so forth.
decided that they wanted to organize themselves into into new political force uh, to challenge to challenge the ANC or for example the EFF more more directly embraces that kind of politics which is something that they've, they've started to do recently sort of parroting these right-wing talking points of putting South Africans first in spite of the EFF claiming to be a pan-African political party being very sympathetic to Jacob Zuma cozying up with with traditional leaders which in South Africa have historically been uh, uh, an oppressive uh, form of form of government. Um, so I think there's a lot happening now, and it's very difficult to predict what it's all going to coalesce into. Um, but I think it's really a reflection of how a lot of political currents in, in South Africa, which had previously been masked under a radical politics, are starting to reveal themselves to to be what they what they really are, which is reactionary. I mean, I'll, I'll add a couple of other things. I mean, I think it's useful to to take it also historically. I think the to the point of there, there are the limitations, and I think their first when in 1996 they adopted what was called gear, which was the first sort of move away from a much more kind of redistributive, more sort of left wing approach to the economy and society and transforming society. Um, when they after they adopted gear, you could still argue at that point that you know we're doing it because there are constraints that white capital want to leave and so on. But then they, I, I would say they, they showed their hand the first time when, after Tabo Mbeki became president and his solution to resolving the problem of, basically, I mean, it is racial inequality. Like whatever people will tell you uh, or beat around the bush, it is racial inequality in South Africa. Less than 1% of whites are poor. All the, 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 the bulk of poor people in South Africa are also black. They happen to be black. So if you are gonna deal with inequality in South Africa, you have to deal with like the racial inequality. And I think Mbeki, when I'm saying he showed his hand, was like, okay, the way I'm gonna solve this is I have to create a black middle class. Like the only way I'm gonna solve this is to create a black middle class using the apparatus of the state, you know, the civil service, etc., And at the same time, opening up, creating opportunity, within business, but that the party, like, you know, under sort of like the protection of the political party, because hopefully then these people will turn into some kind of patriotic bourgeoisie, if you want, something like that. Of course, it didn't work out that way, but I think that was his plan. All that sort of like two nation talk, you know, it's, it was a project, it was a real project. It's, it's we could judge it now, but that, I think that was, what, I wanna say one other quick point before I move on to the other section of what I think was the other move. It's easy, I mean, I get Will's point about the, the, the sort of like what the ANC's original class base was, but I think Will, and I, and I, and I, and I know Will will concede this, that the, the people who were doing you know, that kind of politics, they were also doing it under extreme conditions. It wasn't like they could become middle class. They did this despite apartheid. So it's not like we are gonna throw them under the bus because they were trying to become business people on that party. Yeah, that's true. And that's it sounded true. like that. But we know, we're just trying to say, like, don't think they were radicals. I think, like, that's maybe the point we're hopefully trying to get across. I think the other part of the story is also, so when I say, like, instead of becoming a patriotic bourgeoisie, it quickly emerged that it was only about their own interests. So you had this, like, classic um, quote by Pumzile, Muslambo um, Muka, was in the cabinet with Mbeki, and I think at one point he served as like deputy president of the country, um, saying basically, we should not be a saint to become filthy rich. You know, so like still Ramaphosa is like owning at one point, I think, 
He's the biggest owner of McDonald franchises in the country. Da, da, da. Like that's what that project then becomes. This is why people then become cynical about black economic empowerment. Now it is true that there was a part of society which were gonna be cynical about it anyway, but I, I suppose there was energy for it in the society. Becky had like some legitimacy with that part. I think maybe not with me or well or whoever, but it did have legitimacy. Then I think the, the, the part where Zuma then comes with their version of it is essentially, if you're gonna accumulate, you must accumulate through the state. So that RET, what, what Will mentioned as RET, they, they, the popular phrasing is like radical economic transformation. So it sounds like a massive left-wing project, but it's really the cover for that kind of you know, accumulation, like using the state to get rich. And then I think the last part, which I actually think is the interesting one of this, when you talk about this kind of class politics and South Africa's political class, and I know Will have something to say about this, which is one of the things that people forget about what happened in 2015 to 2017 with roads must fall and fees must fall is that up until that point, if there were protests in South Africa, the early 2000s, you know, with the kind of anti-eviction committee, Soweto Electricity Crisis Committee, anti-privatization forum, all that politics, even the age movement of the, uh, the, 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 the treatment action campaign, which was more a mix of sort of middle-class activists, working class base, et cetera, What's interesting about fees must fall, this is the first moment when the children, I would argue, often, not all of them, but a lot of them, when the, the beneficiaries of the ANC's policies, the actual beneficiaries of ANC policies, for whom the university was being opened up, you know, people who are getting into grad school, people were now, there's a possibility of becoming academics, et cetera, et cetera. It's that class that basically was like, oh, this project is not working. I'm not saying they had signed up to that project, but I think they were the first ones to kind of go like that negotiated revolution, arguing that you have constraints, then doing your, your two different, your BEE and then your, your RET, it's not working for us. Well, RET was not really like a thing yet, but it was in the air. And then they, the way I think they phrase it is to say, well, it's about the symbols. It's about this kind of representational politics. But interestingly, they make, I think, they make the, the connection between the privatization of like essential services, between the idea that you must have free public higher education. They didn't say free education for everybody, but they, you know, whatever, they did say higher education. So it's there that you see something was, if, if, we, if we have to stick to what happening, what's happening to that, to that class, what's happening to African class politics and especially the political class, then there was a hope with that that class was breaking up and that there was a crisis in that class and that it wasn't only necessarily going to be to the right, to these kind of, you know, like mm-hmm. chiefs and old ANC types, or as Will was rightly pointing out, this kind of uh, right-wing front, you know, sort of civic front. No, there was a possibility that out of this, out of this new elite, and I mean, I'm calling it like their children was going to the people. Let me let me put it differently. The people who were going to govern South Africa, the class that was going to govern the state, govern the govern its its institutions, its universities, et cetera, and so on. The you know the commerce that class rebelled against the state, and and that was a possibility that there could be something else in South Africa. Um, 
But of course, you know, again, we we can't judge something. It just happened. So we have to wait and see what it might become. But it, that's the one little part of that story, which is not depressing. Well, I, I want to come back to uh, the sort of the left response to that in that moment. But I just want to, before we do that, uh, if we could talk a little bit about events in July and sort of the question of, I mean, for one, you know, uh, the events surrounding Jacob Zuma and the question of state capture and all of that. And then how do we understand all of that in the context of the sort of crisis on the ground, um, both, you know, sort of the economic crisis, the crisis that's been that ordinary people are facing in terms of COVID, um, the shrinking of services, all of that. And so then it becomes there's and 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 I, you can I want to hear I you know I don't want to put things together that may not necessarily all fit together but then these explosions in the street like in um, you know in some parts of the country and um, and how that became partly a defense of Zuma but really much more and I know that both of you have a lot to say about that um, and and just kind of what it looks like on the ground so I'm just or or, or it did at that time so um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, state capture is uh, is basically, I, I, from an outside standpoint, looks like the defining sort of problem uh, of South African politics of the last 15 years. And, you know, I don't want to sort of recount Jacob Zuma's tenure, because I think that story's kind of become familiar to a lot of people now, ever since he became president in 2009, as, as Sean was, was correctly pointing out, when he uh, was ascending into the presidency of the African National Congress, when Thabo Mbeki was deposed. Uh, and in that moment, he actually had a wide base of support, including from the South African Communist Party, because a lot of people viewed him as this people's person, as this earnest populist who was serious uh, about, about challenging the extent to which Thabo Mbeki's neoliberal regime was unable to, to deliver redistribution of wealth to South Africans, because as Sean has correctly pointed out, the concentration of wealth in South Africa is still unbelievably stark, still incredibly racialized. And it was obvious to everyone at the time that need, this needed to change uh, as soon as it could. And so when, when Zuma came into power, he had a lot of support. Uh, but then soon into his presidency, it quickly became apparent that he was duping everyone and he was shadowed by corruption scandal after corruption scandal. And at the time, it almost seemed like a lot of the corruption was concentrated to him as an individual. But then as investigations spearheaded primarily by South Africa's ombudsman uh, started to, to reveal, the extent of the graft was so widespread, um, it, the patronage of the ANC was so entrenched and and at every level of state from local government to provincial government to 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 the national government um, that you know state capture became this defining problem and and in Zuma's presidency was particularly stuck considering the fact that a lot of the beneficiaries of this were particular individuals uh, 
a wealthy family from India known as the Gupta family at some point had such close access to Zuma that they were making decisions about who would be appointed to cabinet and how they should conduct themselves in their interests. So this is basically just a, a, a quick flash summary of Zuma's presidency. And when it reached a point when Basically, what happened was uh, the South African capitalist class, uh, which is still dominated by the private sector and foreign capital, basically had enough of this. Um, there was mounting pressure uh, and in internal anti-factional politics, Zuma was was sidelined. He stepped down as president. Ramaphosa came into power. Everyone thought this was going to represent uh, a massive push to undo all of the state capture. But even then, it quickly became apparent that Ramaphosa was hamstrung to do anything just because of how widespread patronage had become in the African National Congress and how so many people had so much to lose and so many people's hands were dirty and so on. And so when the State Capture Commission of Inquiry, which was meant to investigate all of this, uh, was started in 2018, was supposed to last, uh, I think, only 170 days. It's 2021 and still hasn't completed its work. Uh, it, it had been conducting these these investigations, had summoned Zuma to many appearances to testify. There were many legal fracases in the midst of that where he refused to do so. And so he was found guilty of contempt. And that was when his arrest happened. And that's what kicked off everything. Um, and when the unrest happened, I think, so there's still, I think, a, a debate, and, and Sean will come in here, there's still a debate in South Africa about how to correctly characterize what happened during the unrest. I think what a lot of the evidence supports is that this was a campaign coordinated by sympathizers of Zuma in order to make the country ungovernable, in order to disrupt the economy, and in order to force the hand of Ramaphosa and other high-level anti-decision makers in, in order for Zuma to be released. Um, and there's evidence of that coordination of specific targeting of, of key infrastructure and logistic networks and, and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, there was a moment when it did develop this mass character. And the reason for that is, is quite plain to see. I mean, South Africa's unemployment rate is at 34.4%. Uh, it's the most unequal country in the world. Um, and in spite of all of these conditions, the state is completely absent and has been absent during COVID as far as crafting a response that was able to address the needs of the majority of people. And we'll talk in a little bit about how that sort of consolidation of an austerity program is continuing. So develop this mass character because people people were hungry, people uh, were indigent and people, people were desperate. So for a couple of days of the unrest, there was this extent to which uh, scores of people were, were raiding supermarkets in order to, to access food. And I think that, you know, a lot of people in that moment sort of thought, we were about to enter uh, a Tunisia moment and these were going to be bread riots. But I think it, it quickly also became the case that that couldn't be so precisely given uh, the weakness of the left, precisely given that there's no political force that could have taken what was then an inchoate explosion of discontent and desperation and channeled it into a progressive, progressive direction. So, uh, you know, the unrest dissipated uh, fairly quickly. Um, and in the course of that unrest as well, there was tremendous loss of life. Uh, and this 
had two factors to it. One, I think, and this is the thing, it's like a lot of this is still not clarified. A lot of this hasn't been uh, properly researched. Uh, but one of it was the fact that uh, the, the repression came from capital, uh, protecting property and private security, uh, shooting at people. And there was also uh, racist violence of, of communities in South Africa mobilizing themselves to, to defend themselves against, against looters. And, and so in places like KwaZulu-Natal, which was where the violence was concentrated, and some parts of Gauteng, which is another province where the violence was concentrated, uh, you had mobs of predominantly uh, Indian and white residents who would stand at the perimeters of, of, of their communities and not allow black people in. And in, in certain towns in, in KwaZulu-Natal, where there is a, a long history of, of communal hostility and strife between Indians and and black South Africans, um, you had you know scores of black people who who were shot, uh, and you know we we have we have upcoming pieces in Africa as a country which give a, a really beautiful history of how this was the case. Um, but this is all to say that the unrest was this period that happened primarily as a response to Zuma's arrest, but it only became as devastating as it was because there were all of these underlying conditions which acted as as vectors and and which exacerbated things. And just one, to add one quick point, I think it's important to, re to recognize that it wasn't in the whole country. It was mostly in, in KwaZulu-Natal primarily, and then it was in parts of Gauteng. Now, some people will argue that politics in South Africa, it, it's not happening unless it's happening in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. You know, because that's sort of like the Gauteng is Johannesburg and surrounds with sort of Johannesburg is like the center of it basically makes up the whole like a lot of what you what you call Gauteng province. So it's like the industrial heart of South Africa. So if that's affected and the country's affected and then that's sort of connected to KZN, you know, through histories of migrant labor, et cetera, agriculture, you know, kind of agribusiness and so on. So. The, but, it, but it's also important to notice it wasn't in the whole country. I think the one, again, to go back to that theme of the right, one of the things, and Will and I remember talking about this at the time, what struck us was the groups that uh, cited openly sort of came out on the side of the state and said, apart from the kind of racist violence, you know, these sort of random racist violence and roadblocks and kind of trying to keep black people out of Indian, predominantly Indian neighborhoods or white neighborhoods, were these kind of the taxi industry were the ones who said it's our job to like protect state institutions, protect business, protect, you know, installations. Um, and, the, and the irony is like this is an industry in South Africa that's heavily unregulated, that does not want to like be like has resisted forms of regulation, forms of taxation. Um, and, and some people might argue a large part of it is like a criminal enterprise or enterprises. But interestingly, they defended the state. I mean, it'd be a curious, I'd be curious to hear what Will says about sort of the whatever, what kind of class politics that is. Then there was also groups like the Corsa Men's Association. This is kind of aspirational politics of posing with your, your kind of, you know, German model sedan with your cool clothes. Like the, I, I thought that with, with very sort of patriarchal ideas of politics, like these are the groups that kind of defended the ANC and defended 
like the country. Of course, it's also true that at some point, just because people disruptions, you know, scares people. Everybody wants you want to live in a you don't want to live in a place where nobody wants to see like this burning all day and all night. So after a while, I think Ramaphosa did win some some of the support of regular kind of middle class people. I was in South Africa at the time, and I do know that middle class people looked out to this kind of nightly or other nightly Ramaphosa TV. You would come on the news and like do these live broadcasts. And people saw this as what they call family hour or family time, where Ramaphosa was speaking to the nation as a family. The problem was he may have tried to, to sort of, if you want to stage manage the, the crisis, and I was, how do I get us out of this kind of upheaval and burning and so on? But there was this scene one night when I was in South Africa where he's on TV speaking and there's a split screen and there are people looting. And that's when you see, ah, he does not have control um, of this particular situation. I think that was, for me, that's the kind of lasting impression. The sort of like, who's defending the state? And who was doing this, you know, and, and what was what was the lasting vision? Like Ramaphosa, that part of the ANC under Ramaphosa have been really good at sort of swaying public opinion at various times, even though he was part of Zuma's government. He managed to portray himself as this like great reformer. And the complaint about him is like nothing is happening, nothing gets reformed. But he did manage to do that, you know, give him a chance. He's clean cut. He's already wealthy. He's not going to steal. Like, I think that's the sort of popular South African public opinion. Um, and then it just became clear over time that he wasn't, he couldn't arrest this crisis. But I think this local election results is clearly sort of a referendum of that, of of all of the sort of like the Ramaphosa um, project. And and one more thing just to say quickly, um, and yeah, to add to what Sean is was saying about how the the agents that became responsible for for quelling the unrest were these groups like taxi associations and men's associations and so on and so forth. I think that's not accidental because it's a result of how the patronage of the ANC party state has drastically undercut the capacity of state institutions over time. And that's also connected to the neoliberalization of the state where basically power and decision-making has to be outsourced. It's often kind of devolved into these often shady characters at a local level who then have to to carry out uh, the bidding of, of the state because the state lacks the ability to do that itself. It doesn't, as Sean was saying, have a grip on the country. And at the moment, power is so, is so dispersed and diffusive am amongst many different actors uh, in, in a very sort of clientelistic way and in a way in which uh, now thinking about a lot of people mistrust the ANC precisely because they just don't see it as having this ability to run a capable state and to carry out the core functions that are required of the state. And I want to let me also add one other small, another little thing to to this kind of this kind of the new right because I I think we're it is a theme for us, which is the what people also don't recognize is that in South Africa in its in its nine provinces in at least five of them. And at least five of them, the traditional authority or form of traditional authorities um, has a really significant role in political governance, 
in um, uh, distributing state resources, um, you know, controlling state resources. Uh, in in if you want to win elections, like even a party like the EFF, which says that it's against forms of you know old school authority and it wants to reform politics and take politics somewhere else in South Africa, they spend a lot of their energy bowing to kings and visiting kings and giving them cars. And so there's there's an element of sort of which I know you, we want to get to this question about the left in South Africa, but they, I think anybody who has to organize people politically in South Africa, you have to, you have to like come to terms with that. And I'm not saying it's not like that is a, a obstacle because it's also true that in the history of South African, uh, of organizing people in South Africa, you know, uh, whether they want farms or mines or whether they were in, in these, in the former like uh, reserves, what became the homelands, what some people call Bantustans, it wasn't impossible to organize those people because even some of the most most striking examples of resistance against the apartheid state happened in those homelands, Sekokuna land, for people who know South Africa, Pondo, the Pondo uprising is happening in the old Transkei. So it's not the case that it's not happening, but I'm just saying it, it, it's there's something about how that, maybe that's because that time there were some traditional leaders, Dalan you know, Sabata, Dalan Diebos, and so on, who sided with the ANC, who openly resisted the state. People early and earlier who went to Robben Island as chiefs, you don't have that kind of, now it's very transactional. There's, you know, the, the, the state is the way they get salaries, the way they get, the way they make well. So I think this is an element of South African politics that people are sort of maybe not serious about. If you, the platinum mines in, 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 in the Northwest of South Africa, the way the traditional authority plays a role there in in kind of siphoning off wealth from from companies, etc. I mean, there's a lot that people will have to come to terms with if you are going to try to say, "I would like to start organizing people in South Africa." I don't think it's like you're just organizing people in some mostly urban area. You know, there's kind of you have to come to terms with different different ways of organizing people. And as I said, it's not that it, people haven't been organized in those places. Great. Thank you, guys. This so this is uh, really some awesome insights and points here. And I just I want to shift gears a little. Well, first of all, I want to remind the audience that if you want to ask a question, uh, log on to the YouTube uh, stream and drop your question in the chat there. And I've already started to get a couple of questions in. So that's great. But yeah, I mean, just kind of jumping off from the last point that both of you are making and to sort of you know, turn a little bit to the question of the left and 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 in particular the non-electoral left and left projects, although it does seem like there's some interesting projects like this cry of the excluded, which ran to candidates and so on. But I'm just in terms of the bigger trajectory about the state of the left on balance and some of those challenges and just the, the um, fees must fall and roads must fall came up earlier. And then just the platinum mines reminds me of you know, the kind of Americana and then the sort of so-called the NUMSA moment and so on where there, you know, there were these very important developments that's in prospects, I guess you could say, for building, uh, you know, for movement building. And of course, South Africa is one of the places with the most, you know, has been historically very vibrant social movements um, and so on. But also the question of actually left 
party building, uh, radical and revolutionary party building. So just, you know, would love to hear, um, you know, your, your thoughts on all of that and kind of a balance sheet or assessment of, of what things look like. Uh, yeah, where to start? I think um, I think as far as as where the left is in South Africa, I think it's in a moment of reconstitution. So as you spoke about now, the NUMSA moment was this was this crucial moment in South Africa where the National Union of Mine Workers left uh, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which uh, is the largest trade union federation in South Africa and is a member of the Tripartite Alliance uh, with the NC. And, you know, NUMSA is the largest trade union in South Africa, so that was significant. And I think a lot of people saw that moment as an opportunity to form a new left-wing political project in and through NUMSA and its networks. And um, there were various sort of proto parties or or formation or fronts that were were started as a way to build towards that workers party um and lots of disagreements there um i think there's often this running tension in the south african left uh between the so-called ngo left so to speak so uh, a left that is primarily uh, occupied by sympathetic NGOs, think tanks, uh, academics, and so on and so forth, and the so-called organized left, which is a left of, uh, led by, by, by trade unions, um, and in that also social movements. So people that aren't trying to organize workers, but people that are trying to organize uh, community members around specific issues, whether it's housing um, or, or access to, to water, or fighting against mining companies and for the protection of, of indigenous land, so on and so forth. So these are the sort of tensions that have always kind of haunted any attempt to, to build new political projects. Um, and like the NUMSA moment failed primarily because uh, NUMSA wanted to build a workers' party and a party that is centered on, on workers and that became the Social Revolutionary Workers Party, um, which performed dismally in the 2019 elections, only amassing 25,000 seats, not enough to get one seat to, in parliament. And I think what that illustrates is similar to what Sean was saying earlier about how if you want to organize anyone politically in South Africa, it's going to require building this coalition of workers. Um, it's going to require building a coalition of people that live in rural South Africa, of the unemployed. Um, and so there's a there's a difficult task ahead of any project to build uh, a, a viable political project in South Africa of how to bring all of these different people together. And Fees Must Fall, as Sean was saying earlier, was, was exciting precisely because um, students, people with a lot of political uh, social and cultural capital who are at the forefront of intellectual production in South Africa, who people listen to, uh, were starting to make these connections in some moments, trying to unite student struggles with worker struggles, uh, with movement to struggles, and so on and so forth. Um, and and basically to think about how that has all led to here. And there's a lot that I'm there's a lot of key moments that I'm missing that I, I Sean should should add should add to. Um, in terms of how it's all led to here, I think that the left at the moment is 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 kind of trying to figure out what to do next 
and how to do it. And I think an important thing that it has to sort of, you said, I mean, earlier you said thinking outside of the electoral left, but I think the moment of the South African left is to think seriously um, about elections and, and contesting elections um, and how to contest, contest elections on a political program that appeals to the majority of people, that is legible to the majority of people. Um, I think there's a way in which we've sort of outmoded the classic kind of Marxist-Leninist design and uh, presentation and uh, that talks to South Africans in with a with a vision that tells them how they're going to redistribute wealth, how they're going to provide services, how they're going to to clean up clean up governance. Um, and I think this is this is the, the profound challenge I think that's facing the South African left today, which is which is how to build this political project. From what base do you build it, um, and who constitutes its its leadership? Uh, and Sean and I have a lot of thoughts about this. There's lots of people who have a lot of thoughts about this, and I think talking about the crime they excluded, I think that's was what was was really encouraging about this moment, about how one of the organizations which was part of it, uh, the Makanda Citizens Front, which is based in in Makanda, uh, which is an important municipality in the Eastern Cape, has a lot of historical significance, but has been completely, completely, completely decimated by years and years of neglect and corruption from the African National Congress to the extent that one of the members of the Makana Citizens Front, which is the Unemployed People's Movement, successfully challenged the the council to to court. Um, And what happened is it challenged the ANC in these elections. Uh, It ran for the first time, and it's now the official opposition um, in that local council. And the Citizens Front is interesting because it's this group of both uh, an unemployed people's movement, uh, ex-DA councillors, concerned residents associations, so on and so forth. So I think that whatever new left-wing political project that happens in South Africa is not going to look like or can't look like the old left formations that that we've become familiar to. Um, it's going to look very different. It has to embrace a very different politics, a very democratic politics, uh, and, and what that looks like, uh, we'll, we'll see. Okay, I have a couple of quick points that I will know is I can get I can get quite fired up about um, the 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 sort of the, the South African left. So I mean I I I don't want to take up too much time with like the history part, but I do think it matters. Like part of the part of the story of the South African left is so I I've, let me drop this first and then I'll tell my my history part. I think the problem with the left in South Africa is like they've never really taken elections seriously, and I by this I mean. They haven't, they've never, a left outside the ANC has never thought about elections in a serious way, or they've thought about building an electoral party. Like they've never, I mean, and we can, I hope there's some people listening will probably hate me for saying this. I think that wasn't going to happen. I think it, it was nice when it sounded nice, but because they were dealing with a fundamental problem with what was going on politically in South Africa at the time, they had to convince like the workers to not vote for the ANC. And whether it was the NUMSA version of this, whether it was the the early social movements of the early 2000s, the one I mentioned from, you know, that was working on electricity, privatization and so on. I think they never really said to people, when they put up independent candidates for local government, they actually did. Like in Soweto, Trevor Gwani, he actually won. 
but many of the other people didn't because I think they never said to people, if we are going to run, it means you can't vote for the ANC. I think that was never made clear. I think that the NUMSA thing, which is NUMSA was in, was in the alliance. Most of NUMSA's people, to be Kasatu or NUMSA, it also means to be ANC, a regular. I'm not talking like leaders who are saying, okay, now I've had enough. I'm going to leave. I'm breaking away. I'm forming United Front or something like that. I think a regular sub-steward, a, a person who's politically like a good a good person who's committed, who wants South Africa to be better, they vote. They still thought, I'm, going, I'm voting ANC. When it comes to elections, I'm voting ANC. And I think that NUMSA also didn't understand that at the time. And then I think beyond that, there's a problem with the left in South Africa. And as I said, I'm going to be harsh when I say this. Every time there's an election, they don't, when, the, when this election ends, they don't say, okay, tomorrow we have to start organizing for the next one. Like, you know, what are we going to do about the election of 2023, which is the national election? And then what are we going to do about the election? I don't know, it's the next one in 2025, the local government election. We got we to gotta then, what are we doing about the, the local government election? No, they wait. This is, you can, it's documented. I mean, I can go take out the newspaper clippings, go to the web, Google it, whatever. It seems like a month or two months before elections, suddenly there's some workshop, there's the announcement of candidates, and then they do badly. So there's that problem in South Africa, I think, on the left in South Africa, of never really being clear about what to do about elections. I think there's also, because the, the initially people thought the ANC, as I said earlier, is the one that holds like our ambition, our hopes, the left gave that to the ANC. They said to the ANC, you hold this for us. And then it took them like a while now to break out of it. And I still think they cannot like, they can't sort of figure it out that they need to say like, okay, the ANC project is not working. We need something else. And this is my other two quick other points on this. If the, the big question I think for the left in South Africa is it has to decide, does it want to run? Does it want to invent a totally new left political party? And the record on that in South Africa, I don't think is good. Just based on like my own sort of like observation, whether it was the NUMSA moment, whether it was these other smaller parties like the workers, revolutionary, you know, like these little parties that pop up around election time in South Africa. They just ne- they can't seem to pull it off because you need resources, means you have to start from scratch. So I, I think that the question is like, can, should you build like your own party? The, the, the short answer is, I don't know. I don't think it's a good idea. The long answer is maybe, but then you have to accept that it's gonna take you a while before you're gonna see success. If you look in Germany, whether it's the Lunke or other parties like the Pirate Party, whoever, Lula in Brazil, it took him, he ran a whole bunch of times and then finally he started like getting close and then eventually he won. So the issue in South Africa is like, do they have the patience to lose at first, not too well, keep building? And also the second thing is, do you start, if you have a party, do you run on local elections first, build a reputation locally and then start winning what DSA, I know the electoral system is different, but in the US, what the DSA does is endorse certain candidates for these like sort of state office, mayoral, mayoral, uh, uh, not you know for mayor, but city council. And then you sort of like build the party from the bottom up. And of course, as I said, it's about the electoral system here. So that's the, that's the issue on like building the party. The other option is 
to to build this like front. And maybe you can't say that you can't say the word front because front sounds old to whatever. So you're gonna have to use a new word. But it's gonna be a front that says, okay, the unemployed people's thing already exists. I don't have to go replicate it. The Makana, this and that exists, the civic front exists. And so I just need to, I need to come up with something like a, a, a program. And if you, it's the way like the DSA does in the US, and people sign up to this program, this is what we stand for. And if you stand for this, we endorse you. So now there's like all these, like the same with the right, as was as Will saying, the right is probably thinking already about 2024 in South Africa. Well, the left should be smart too. Build your own front, say, these are my points. If you agree with all these points, then use, we endorse you as a candidate of whatever this is going to be called. And it has to be a name that is local and that can appeal to like local people. Then I think just two other small points on this. It cannot. Uh, Sean, just a, just a quick heads up. We have 20 minutes left total. Okay. And we quick? do have some, some, you can be just to, to just a time check. And we have a couple of right. questions no, that have cool. come in for the audience. So I'll be quick on this. My last few quick points on this. I think it, yep. it, it would help the South African people in South Africa to go study other political parties elsewhere in other places. And by this, of course, I mentioned DSA. You can go study people in Germany. You can study people in Barcelona and so on. But I think some of the most interesting, I think, and Will has written about this, we must go look at South America. We have to go look at Latin America. People have come up with really interesting things. They've won elections in, in Peru, win elections in Chile at the city, at the state level, where there's very interesting um, coalitions between feminists and the left. Think, go look at those and see if there's something uh, we can learn about that we could we take forward. But I think the key point, if I could sum it up, is to say I don't think there's really ever been a serious take on elections on the left in South Africa. They've never really understood, like, okay. Are we serious about elections? Before the elections, they'll say elections, it's worthless. Don't, you know, I'm not, I'm sort of caricaturing it, but it, it, it boils down to that. Oh, I'm not sure about elections. Elections, waste of time for the people. This is the problem partly for me. I'm going to be canceled after this. <laughs> <laughs> I would, one article I just want to flag from Africa as a country that I personally got a lot out a lot out of was now Reddy's piece back in April on South Africa's left needs a new party. So, I mean, it is from a few months back, but food for thought and uh, just, I, you know, really appreciated uh, a lot of his points. So I'm going to, a couple of the questions that have come in are related to movement building and um, and particular particular struggles. So I'm going to kind of combine them a little bit just for the sake of time, which is so we have one question uh, that came in about the movement of decolonizing education and meaning specifically uh, question of language, curriculum and so on. So what's the current state of that? And then a different kind of uh, question about movement is about the environmental justice struggle and particularly on the heels of the COP and so on. And the question is, is there any hope for the development of, uh, of the, the necessary political will to compel SA to transition from, uh, you know, coal and the animal agriculture uh, industry. So those are two sort of specific questions. And there was also a general question, which I think has been taken up 
pretty extensively, but just what is the future of the left in South Africa? So, but I, you know, I just wanted to sh- share that as well, but I think been touched on quite a bit. So tossing it back to you too. I think I'll have a, a crack at the the first question about you know uh, the movement for decolonization on on campuses and linking it back to Sean's comments earlier about what that moment and the the sense of political possibility that saturated that moment. I think it's it's absolutely true that Rose Must Fall and Fees Must Fall was symbolically. I think that's it's undeniable that symbolically, symbolically it was this the biggest challenge to the post-apartheid order that South Africa has seen, as Sean was saying, this was noteworthy in the sense that the supposed beneficiaries of, of, of change were saying the system is not, is not working. I think that maybe one of the ways in which it proved limited was how the currents, which were trying to build those solidarities between students and and workers and connecting to struggles outside of campus were the ones that were ultimately marginalized. So, you know, it's important to mention that a big struggle that led to Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall was the struggle for insourcing workers on South African on South African campuses, which was which is monumental. But what happened during Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall was the co-optation of the movement uh, by South Africa's political formations by the African National Congress, by the Economic Freedom Fund fighters and the people who are at the forefront uh, were the ones who who had connections to these parent bodies. And, and that sort of defanged the movement of its of its radical character, of its oppositional and its confrontational character. And so thinking back now to the movement towards decolonization and campuses, it's hard to say where it is. I think a first big thing that's that's put a damper on a lot of political activity in South Africa is COVID. Um, you know, students aren't on campus. If there aren't on campus, there's very limited political activity. Um, but I think that decolonization, I think at, a, at an institutional administrative level, that work is continuing and it's led by academics and so on and so forth. But thinking about the political possibilities outside of that and the legacies and inheritances of Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall, there have been flashes of opportunity. There was a resurgence of Fees Must Fall protests in South African campuses at the beginning of that of this year. It faced the same problem that previous iterations have faced. What I think is necessary, though, and a lot of these questions do depend on, as Sean and I have been discussing throughout, is where the South African left is, because I think what needs to happen now is because there's going to be another wave of student protests, because I think the key problems that were addressed there, which is problems of access, the fact that fees haven't fallen, that accessing a tertiary education in South Africa with its widespread poverty and inequality is still prohibitively expensive, those issues are gonna come up again and again and again. What is necessary is that when the next iteration arrives, there needs to be some political formation that can champion the student cause and in opposition and in confrontation to the ANT and the EFF so that People can have a political home. I think that's that's a big problem of of that faces the South African left is that there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of desire for for something that's different. Except there is no political vehicle through which those frustrations can be articulated and expressed and nurtured um, and developed. 
Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think a lot of, a lot hangs on on how the South African left reconstitutes itself in this moment. Um, and a lot of the possibilities for, for student activism uh, depend on that. I mean, I'll add one minute to this. I think the key is creativity. The question is like, how creative can the South African left be in, in the way that it responds to these crises? It, it has allowed like the EFF, for example, to, to currently the EFF basically colonize, like that's the, I can't use the word colonize with the EFF. <laughs> EFF, like, what, is there a better word? They command, they even call themselves they command, student command. They, they command. command. The EFF commands that spot popu- at the popular level, if you want, and the EFF um, uh, kind of presents itself as that, like it is the left. Like, you know, that space that the left should take in South Africa, the EFF takes that space. Maybe not the rhetoric, but like the way that they use social media, the way that they've changed the way campaigning works. That's go learn. If I, you know, that's I think the advice I think that I would have now for the left in South Africa. Go look at like how you do those kind of popular things, and and because the moment is different, like it demands I think a different kind of politics right now in South Africa. Do either of you want to take up the issue of the transition from coal and um, and agricultural farming, uh, farming and uh, the agriculture industry rather, and just you know, kind of what what that struggle looks like? Yeah, so I think in South Africa, the challenges faced by that struggle are no different to the ones faced uh, around the world. I think at the moment in South Africa, there's there's sort of this there's sort of this I guess tension between um, the trade union movement um, and it's having to serve the interests of its largely industrial working class base um, and how decarbonization means the fact that a lot of people's jobs are going to be in precarity and uncertain, and there's a lack of clarity of what would happen if a if a program of decarbonization were to were to be undergone. So there's a lot of reticence, I think, from the trade union movement to to fully embrace the the vision of of a just transition, uh, which is maybe an, an unfair way to put it, but at least it's not uh, a key sort of cause that they are championing yet. Um, I think it can be if. There is some way of organizing both the trade union movement and social movements, particularly in sort of frontline mining communities that are being devastated by these activities um, for for that just transition and and articulating it as as being a, a cause that affects uh, working class people, but an expanded concept of of working class people. Um, and I think once once that once that political formation is is organized, only then can you really mount a serious challenge uh, to to the to the dominance of South African capital. Because at the moment, it's South African capital that is dictating the the climate conversation. I think that there are a lot of sort of progressive think tanks and organizations that are trying to make a dent on all of this stuff. But unfortunately, it's it's happening at an elite level, and it'll it'll continue to happen at an elite level unless there is some political force that can impose economic and political costs for for failing to transition, for failing to decarbonize, for failing to wean South Africa off coal dependency 
and so on and so forth. And I think whatever this looks like, it must also make a broad and general appeal to South Africa to connect the climate crisis to the energy instability that South Africa is currently facing, that it's not just a matter of ESCOM's historic poor planning and mismanagement that has led to the energy crisis that we're facing now, but that coal itself is an unreliable source of energy and that uh, a just transition is in the interest of providing South Africa a stable uh, and, and sustainable force that is taking up the mantle of, of this. Well, and I, I think your point that this is uh, the question of the contradictions within a left movement for that just transition, that is very much a challenge that's faced around the globe in terms of, you know, unions and their their particular polls and so on. And um, I know that I, I was, when I was in South Africa in 2018, I was at a demonstration with the um, Adiba Crisis Committee that with the fighting against the titanium mining um, on the coast, and that AMCU, one of the unions, did show up there and was, and so it's in, and to go back to the point about cry of the excluded, and I think some of these coalitions and networks are clearly places where you're bringing these left forces within the union movement together with social justice and community movements and so on. I thought that, that was a really, and it's just one small example, but I thought that was very exciting. And that um, that moment, the potential of what you're describing is like, there's definitely potential for these alliances or the basis for a front, it's there. But I think if it, if it has to happen, then it has to be a little bit more flexible about kind of, you know, where people are coming from. So AMCO is not, AMCO is a sort of, like a lot of people on the left, I think can be very critical of AMCO because AMCO broke away from NUM, the National Union of Mine Workers. It's a sort of independent union. You know, it's like there's a, there's always kind of issues. I mean, this is too much inside a baseball now, but they, you know, like the way people talk about its leaders and so on. But then I think taking taking the the people who join AMCU, they're doing it on good faith. And mm-hmm. they are they are mad at there's the conditions that they work under and the the little money that they earn and the housing that they live in and so on. So instead of like judging them like what is their theory of the revolution? you know, what party do they side with? I think the starting point is like, what is this thing that we want to achieve? And like, to your point, that moment that you described shows those beautiful moments in South Africa where they kind of do though, they do exactly what we're hoping. And then other moment people get back bogged down in, in these sort of ideological purity disputes and so on. I, um, so thanks for that. And um, we're, we're coming up on just seven minutes and then the, the program has to end. But there's one other specific question that came in through the chat, which is switching gears back a bit, which is it's a question about Zuma and whether uh, panelists believe, think that Zuma is entirely cynical or does he believe what he says about white monopoly capital and the conspiracy against him? So maybe we could take about another three, four minutes on that, and then just do some final, you know, closing. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I think that's a quick one to answer. I think he's, I think he's cynical. Um, I think Zuma's, yeah, he's, he's entirely cynical. Maybe, maybe he believes in his own co-aid about white monopoly capital, but he doesn't because 
there's evidence to show that this whole idea of white monopoly capital was spin. It was entirely constructed by a PR firm uh, in the United Kingdom as a way to deliberately sort of cloak this campaign of of self enrichment in in some political political language. Um, so you know it wasn't of his of his own sort of studious kind of political theorizing. It was a way of of getting him out of hot water of how to to sort of um, mislead a lot of South Africans into thinking that he was pursuing uh, a good faith crusade uh, against the the racialization of South Africa's capitalist class. Um, so I think it's it's cynical. I mean, I think a lot of people, and I mean, coming back to this earlier point, as we were saying, it is the case that inequality in South Africa is incredibly racialized. It is the case that initiatives such as Black Economic Empowerment were necessary to, to, to stamp out racism in the private sector. Um, that has to be stopped, and that was important. I think the point that one needs to acknowledge now is that this campaign, as Sean was saying, to build a patriotic bourgeoisie, to uplift uh, a black middle class, is not only something that is undesirable in the sense of it's, um, you know, as, as Fanon would so astutely say, ages ago is something which is, is not really in the in the interests of, of the marginalized in society, but it's also something that just can't work. It can't happen anymore. It's no longer viable, a viable way of, of redistributing wealth in society. Trickle-down economics doesn't work after all. So, you know, what is required is uh, a people-led um, plan of redistribution and one that actually redistributes wealth and directs that wealth towards uh, pub investment into education, into healthcare, into basic income, uh, into so on and so forth, um, rather than trying to prop up some group and hoping that that will filter down into the rest of society. I mean, the, the, the quick quick points on this, um, rather than I would say white monopoly capital, it's probably like there's this like multiracial, there's like more like a multiracial monopoly capital that is governing um, and sort of pilfering whatever resources at the expense of still a majority of black people. Like that is maybe the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the break in the society. And I think the other, the other side is, the thing about Zuma is the danger is that he drags it, he drags out. I mean, remember he's been, he's been charged like a while back and then he goes to court and then he, he appeals and, he he uses the resources the resources of the state and the focus of the state to the, the state has to spend all its energy on him instead of spending its energy on transforming the country on making lives better for regular people i mean and again i'm not doing anc spend here but it means also that anc can't even do in its own way its own attempt of doing its you know party work and so on it has to spend its time on zuma and i think the, even more than that i think it it, it he's He's done so much to legitimize the struggle to transform South Africa. All the people who are concerned about inequality in South Africa and making it better, what Zuma has done is to almost cannibalize the discourse, like a real sincere discourse about how to transform South Africa and used it to for his own ends and to cover up all his, to, to I don't know what's the phrase Will said, what is the phrase you said in the beginning? Um, about what, how do you view Zuma or something like to, to pull that off, to pull off as like a heist. I mean, like I think that's the 
there's the same of Zuma, and that sadly there are all these people who, you know, who kind of think and believe that somehow this is this this kind of noble, you know, kind of struggle by a martyr. He's martyring himself for the poor. Whenever it's so obvious that that's not the case. Well, we literally have one minute left, so I'm just going to um, end by saying thank you so much to both of you, uh, Will Shoki and Sean Jacobs, for just such um, a, a fantastic and thoughtful conversation. And just uh, reminding everyone to to be in touch with and follow and all that everything that Africa as a country is publishing and and talking about um, Africa as a country radio and and all of their great platforms and projects. It's really just um, a fantastic um, project to be to be uh, linked into and and so on to hear more from both of these guys and uh, and and many many others and um, again to remind people that this was uh, hosted by internationalism from below if you want to find out more about us and what we do also find us on Twitter Facebook and so on and thanks again to Haymarket books um, and to Sean and all the back of house help and also to review of Africa, uh, review of African political economy. So, and thanks to all the audience out there for joining and participating. And please share this conversation and stay in touch. And um, until next time, thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.